Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Our Aquinas 101 program has reached 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. Will you help us reach more souls? Support our mission by sending a gift at ThomisticInstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. No spaces. That's ThomisticInstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. So it's a pleasure to introduce uh, Professor Michael Gorman. Uh, who is Ordinary Professor of Philosophy at the Catholic University of America. He is the author of Aquinas on the Metaphysics of the Hypostatic Union, published by Cambridge University Press in 2017, and forthcoming in spring of 2024, A Contemporary Introduction to Thomistic Metaphysics, which will be published by Catholic University of America Press. But more important than any of those things is that he is among the wisest men that I have ever met. So, uh, Professor Graham. All right. <laughs> um, so, my, the topic is Aquinas and guilt. Can you hear me? Yes. All right. Um, let me... Let me just tell you what the... If people like... Um, to know what the outline is. Let me just tell you what the outline is very briefly in, in case you care to follow so you'll know when the punishment is near its end. So I'm going to start with some introductory rem- remarks. I'm going to do a review of evil as privation. I'm going to talk about poena versus culpa. Then I'm going to talk about voluntariness. Then I'm going to talk about what's special about moral goodness. Then I'm going to talk about various ways for an action to be bad. Then I'm going to talk about causes of culpable action. Then I'm going to say, if bad actions have causes, how can they be voluntary? Then I'm going to say something about guilty feelings, and then it will be over. So, I begin as one does, with a few introductory remarks. (laughs) My task is to discuss what Aquinas says about guilt, or to use his word, culpa. Culpa is translated in various ways when talking about Aquinas. Sometimes it's guilt, sometimes fault, sometimes moral wrong. As always, when you're reading Aquinas or about him, you'll want to check the Latin. Unless, of course, you're already reading it in Latin, which is better. If we translate culpa as guilt, then a possible problem arises that needs to be addressed immediately. There's a difference between guilt as a feeling and guilt as the state of being in the wrong. Near the end, I'll say a few things about guilt as a feeling But for now, let me just say that I'm mostly not going to be talking about guilt as a feeling, 
but rather about guilt as the objective state of being in the wrong, being at fault, being guilty. You can be guilty in this sense without feeling guilty one little bit. It's kind of scary. Culpa or fault or guilt is a special kind of evil or badness. Roughly, it's badness of action. To explain it, here comes the outline again, I'll say some things about badness or evil in general. Then I'll distinguish culpa from its main contrast partner, Puena. Then I'll develop our main topic, culpa itself. Obviously, that means I'll be repeating some stuff you have heard earlier this week and even earlier today. I hope you're okay with that. I am. Repetition makes it easier to remember things. Also, and more importantly, it makes it easier to understand them in the first place. Here, then, is a quick review of evil as privation. Evil, as Aquinas understands it, is not a positive thing or property in its own right, but a lack of something positive that ought to be there. Think of a bird missing a leg. This is bad, but what's bad is not a thing. It's not as if the bird has two legs, a present leg and an absent leg. And, you know, as if what's bad is having an absent leg rather than a second present leg. What's bad about the situation is not that something bad is there, but that something good is not there. So evil is a lack, a lack of something that should be there. On this way of thinking, sentences like evil exists, while certainly true, are systematically misleading. They give the impression that evil is an extraordinary kind of reality, when in fact, it's a lack of an ordinary reality. Of course, we must always keep in mind, it's not a lack of just any old ordinary reality, but of a reality that should be there. Humans don't have wings, but that's not an evil, because humans are not supposed to have wings. By contrast, a bird's not having wings would be an evil, because birds are supposed to have wings. With that little reminder in mind, let's go on to talk about the contrast between culpa and puena. And here I have in mind culpa as distinguished from puena in the broad sense of puena, the one that was sketched out at some length um, by James Brent on Thursday, and not what Dr. Lewis mostly focused on of the narrower, somewhat narrower sense of poena in the sense of what we in English would call punishment. We can think of this distinction as turning on where the evil resides, which reality is lacking something. Evil is a lack, yes, but we always need to say what is doing the lacking, what is doing without. If I say, oh, it's so sad, a left arm is missing, you might well want to know who is missing the left arm. And if I respond by saying, what a bizarre question. No one is missing the arm 
It's just missing, that's all. <laughs> then you will know that I'm deeply confused. So here is a distinction that Aquinas makes. Sometimes there's a lack of goodness in the makeup of an agent, and sometimes there is a lack of goodness in the action of an agent. We have the first kind of lack when the agent is missing something that would enable him to act well. He is missing some knowledge, or he's missing courage, or he's missing his left arm. We have the second kind of lack when the agent is not acting well. He's saying something stupid, or he is running away when he should be standing firm, or he's doing a poor job of playing hockey. To quote Aquinas, fault, that's culpa, is an evil of the very action. Well, puena, punishment, I guess, is an evil befalling the cause of the action. Again, the evil of punishment, puena, befalls the very one who acts, and the evil of moral wrong, culpa, as such, befalls the very action. So when authorities afflict an agent with evil, that's punishment, that's puena, but even something that appears to happen by chance, like breaking your leg, qualifies as puena in this sense. But never mind that. Let's focus on what it means to say the badness of action is rightly called guilt, fault, or culpa. At first glance, it might seem entirely unproblematic to talk like this. If I kill an innocent person in cold blood, how is this not a cause of guilt, fault, moral wrongness? And fair enough. But still, there are a pair of tricky points that need working out. One of those tricky points is the connection between culpa and voluntariness. When Aquinas divides evil into culpa and puena, he's doing so in a context that's restricted to a discussion of free voluntary actions, such as human actions performed by free voluntary agents, such as humans. He's not addressing the quote-unquote actions of acids or dogs or falling pianos. You can, to be sure, speak of a dog as an agent, as something that acts, and you can distinguish between the dog itself, the cause of canine actions, and the canine actions themselves. That would sort of set you up for applying the culpa puena distinction in the canine realm. But Aquinas doesn't do that. When he talks about badness of action, he means badness of action action, badness of rational action, badness of voluntary action. So we won't talk about culpa except when we are dealing with rational free agents capable of fully voluntary actions. But this is not yet enough of a restriction because rational voluntary agents exhibit many actions or operations that are not rational or voluntary. Right now, you are doing various things to maintain your blood pressure, widening and narrowing your blood vessels, 
modifying the viscosity of your blood, increasing or decreasing your heart rate, things like that. But you aren't doing any of it voluntarily. So if, like many people, you aren't doing a very good job of it, well, that's bad. But it's not a matter of guilt or fault, even though you are a rational agent. The point is that guilt or fault applies not to all the actions of voluntary agents, but only to the voluntary actions of voluntary agents. In illustrating the idea that a voluntary agent can perform involuntary operations, I gave the example of an action that not only isn't voluntary, but can't be voluntary. Maintenance of blood pressure is an operation of the vegetative power of the soul, which as Aristotle pointed out some time ago, does not listen to reason. But there are types of action that by nature are voluntary in the ordinary case, and yet which can, per accidens, be involuntary in a particular instance. I'll come back to this below. But just to give you an inkling of what I mean, someone who becomes deeply mentally ill and ends up as a serial killer isn't acting voluntarily anymore. We do not attribute fault or culpability to such a person. We say he is not guilty by reason of insanity. And it's an interesting question how common this sort of case is. How frequently is our voluntariness and therewith our culpability completely taken away? And can it be taken away in part? As I say, more on this below. So much for now on culpa and voluntariness. I want to switch over to the other tricky point, which has to do with another kind of restriction that Aquinas mentions. It has to do with what's special about moral action and moral goodness and badness. I don't think I understand the point as deeply as I would like to, so I wanted to share it. In Summa Theologiae, Prima Secundae, question 21, article 2, Aquinas is asking whether human actions that are good or bad are, for that reason, praiseable or blamable, laudabilis or culpabilis. Culpable. Which is obviously connected to our keyword culpa. Aquinas says, speaking generally, that the answer is yes. Of most interest to us, he says that in the case of a voluntary action, it's the same for an action to involve evil, sin, and fault or guilt. Idem est malum peccatum et culpa. However, let's look at what happens in the second objection and Aquinas' reply to it. The objection talks about peccatum, sin, if you insist, but really we'd be better off saying deviation or going astray or something like that. Um, Dr. Jensen had a... Steve Jensen, what was your translation? Error. 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 Okay. It's a tough... It's not always sin. Yeah. Mm. So... Yeah, the objection says that peccatum, deviation, 
is found both in moral actions and in actions belonging to arts, by which he means something like plumbing or carpentry or grammar, what the Greeks called techne. However, the objector goes on, repeating an Aristotelian point, we don't necessarily blame the practitioner of an art for going astray, because one of the things that makes an art an art is that you can use it either way. Carpenters are good at making tables that stand up straight and at making tables that fall over just as they choose. If you want to poison someone, who better to ask than a doctor? The point... The point of the objection is that acting badly in a technical matter, making a tippy table, or giving someone a poison instead of a medicine, isn't always blameworthy. Bad action isn't always a matter of culpa. That's the objection. In reply, Aquinas says, in effect, well, yes and no. If I understand him correctly, his point is this. In the case of an art, like a grammar or medicine or plumbing, we act for a particular end that we think up and propose. To use this word or that, to administer this drug or that, to bend the copper pipe at this angle rather than some other. In such a case, deviation or going astray consists in not accomplishing what we set out to accomplish. But in moral action, we don't, or don't merely, act for a particular end that we think up. Our actions are ordered to the entire end of human life, the life of virtue or happiness. Our action is judged good or bad, and therefore praiseworthy or culpable, on the basis of whether it is correctly ordered to that ultimate end or not and not merely on the basis of whether we happen to achieve the proximate end that we were striving for. So, for example, if I shoot and kill an innocent person, and you say, that was a bad action, I can't say, what do you mean? I hit him square in the middle of the chest. It was a really good shot. Judged solely in terms of my personal goal at the time, i.e. killing the guy, it was good. It was, again, a good shot. But I have no right to demand that my action be judged exclusively in terms of my personal goal at the time. I have to submit my action to the rule of whether it serves the overall purpose of human life. Aquinas, then, would not say that some actions actions involving technical skills, are morally neutral, to be judged only by the standards of technical success or failure, while others are subject to moral judgment. Aquinas thinks that all actions, even technical actions, belonging to arts, like marksmanship, need ultimately to be referred to the overall end of human life, that is, brought under the moral perspective. In the example I gave, the shooter has done well qua marksman, but badly qua human moral agent. Aquinas gives a different example. Someone who deliberately produces shoddy but seemingly high-quality goods in order to cheat his customer is displaying skill and, in a crazy way, excellence 
qua craftsman, but he is acting badly as a human being. So I think Aquinas' real point is this. Every voluntary human action, including technical craft actions, uh, every voluntary human action is subject to being judged as praiseworthy or blameworthy. Everything we do might be something that lands us in guilt or fault or moral wrong. But this truth does not reveal itself if we focus only on the technical action narrowly understood. We need to broaden our perspective to take in whether the action successfully aims at the good of a good human life. Now, why am I going on about this? For a few reasons. First, I think it suggests a deep point about Aquinas' overall moral system. In practice, it may be okay in this or that particular moral analysis not to explicitly raise the question of the whole human good. If I'm wondering whether I may falsely tell the officer that I wasn't speeding, it's enough to reflect that, well, I was speeding. So saying that I wasn't speeding would be a lie, and lying is wrong. Ultimately, however, I can't really explain why lying is wrong unless I take up the broader perspective. If I simply consider things in terms of my goal as a driver, avoiding a ticket, then lying counts as acting well. In other words, even if we don't always advert to it explicitly, thoughts about the overall goodness of human life need to be there in the background of every moral analysis. And perhaps one reason some kinds of moral analysis don't work very well is because this background perspective isn't there. Second, I think these thoughts can help us diagnose something wrong with a lot of advice that people get nowadays. Choose your goals and achieve them, we are told. That's not entirely bad advice, to be sure, but as a complete picture of human action, it's basically the same as the technical or craftsman point of view that, for Aquinas, needs to be understood against a broader background and not against just any broader background. You can have pretty much anything as a goal, but you can't have pretty much anything as the overall good of human life. On the contrary, this is something fixed by nature, even if it can take on somewhat various forms. Life advice that tells us to accomplish what we want without enabling us to figure out what a good life looks like will be at serious risk of telling us to accomplish things that are technically impressive, but humanly disastrous. So, we are culpable, guilty, at fault, morally in the wrong, when we act badly, and every act has the potential to be bad in this way, but the relevant kind of badness may not appear until we step back and take in the whole picture asking ourselves whether this act serves the proper end of human life or instead deviates from it and even undermines it. To say this is quite general, now I would like to shift focus a bit and discuss the various ways in which action can be bad. And I will bring in the classic Thomistic trio of object, end, and circumstances 
the material here gets very complicated very quickly. I'll be way over my skis quite soon. Um, our difficulties are enhanced because Aquinas, or so it seems to me, does not always spell out fully explicit answers to questions that we might have. In some cases, it is necessary to derive from his principles what he would say. In other cases, however, we need to be open to the possibility that it's not actually possible to know what Aquinas' view would be. In such cases, we have no choice but to think for ourselves. <laughs> of course, we were going to think for ourselves anyway, right? Even when we can figure out what Aquinas' views are or would be, we still have the separate task of figuring out whether they are correct or not. I mean, no one was seriously proposing just agreeing with St. Thomas no matter what he says, right? That would be very unphilosophical. St. Thomas would hate that. Okay, so I'm going to offer up some of the core ideas involved in the classical trio of, again, object and, and circumstances, but I'm not going to get to get into everything, let alone resolve everything. If I can get you set up to start thinking about the debates yourselves, then that will be plenty for now. Let's start by contrasting object and end, objectum and finis. Let's say you are drinking coffee in order to stay awake. The thing you are acting for, that for the sake of which you are acting, is your end. In this case, staying awake. The very action you are performing, what you are doing, is your object. In this case, drinking coffee. Now, this might sound wrong. If someone were to ask you, what is your object right now? Mightn't you be just as likely to answer staying awake as to answer drinking coffee? Yes, that's so. And it's not because you're dumb. It's because our various uses of the English word object don't always map perfectly well onto Aquinas' various uses of the Latin word objectum. <clears throat> it's important to remember that Aquinas never uses the word object. He simply didn't write in English, let alone 21st century English. Indeed, Aquinas' own use of objectum is a lot more confusing and flexible than we might think at first, as you can learn from reading, say, Joseph Pilsner. So let's not get too hung up on the words. The point is that there's a difference between what you are doing and that for the sake of which you are doing it. You are drinking coffee for the sake of staying awake. <clears throat> Let me mention a complication or worry. This contrast between object and end can be seen as a kind of template, a template that you can slide forward or back. You are drinking coffee for the sake of staying awake, but perhaps you are staying awake for the sake of learning. And perhaps, sliding the template in the opposite direction, you are lifting your arm for the sake of drinking coffee. Is describing something as an end versus describing it as an object always relative to one's particular perspective? I don't pose that question as if it's a worry about relativism. 
it's not a question of being relative in that way. But still, is something an object always relative to some end? And is something an end always relative to some object? Or is that too simple? To ask such questions is to begin to trek deep into the swamps of action theory. That's a really interesting area of philosophy. But today, we are going to stay on the paved path and just look out into the swamp from behind the rail. There's gators out there. And I forgot to bring my gun, so we're just going to stay right where we are. Once you've described your action in terms of object and end, what you are doing and why you are doing it, there's one more thing to add, or perhaps I should say scores more things to add, and that's what Aquinas calls the circumstances. Now, circumstances in this end does include what we would normally in English call circumstances, when and where the action is taking place. But Aquinas is here using the word circumstances, or rather, he's here using the word circumstantiae, much more broadly than that. Remember how I said that the object is what you are doing? That's like saying it's the kind or essence or nature of the act. Well, the circumstances, Aquinas says, are like the things that stand around the act. They circumstant octum. They are on its periphery, so we can think of them as not the essence of the act, but as its accidents. What, when you are doing it, when you are doing it, and where, and how, and many other things. I'm giving a talk right now. That's what I'm doing. I'm doing it in Newburgh, but that's not essential. Neither is the fact that I'm doing it while wearing these shoes, nor with my hair arranged just so or at precisely this speed, or whatever. Now for another complication. If you want, you can use the contrast between object and circumstances as another template. Instead of saying that my object is giving a talk while the circumstances are that I'm in Newburgh, why not say that my object is speaking words aloud while the circumstances are that those words are the words of a philosophy talk. That seems pushing it a bit. No. In any case, Aquinas says, somewhat puzzling, puzzlingly, that sometimes the circumstances of an action change its species. His example is that normally, stealing is stealing, and what you are stealing, and from whom, are circumstances. But, if you steal a sacred object from a church, your act has been changed from an act of theft to an act of sacrilege. This is a bit confusing, because it's very unclear how an accident could change the nature or species of something. Presumably what's meant is that in this case, the what and the from what, or the, the from whom, are not circumstances after all. Okay. But then how do we know in which cases this holds, and in which cases it doesn't. Another gator to wrestle with, but not now. What does all this have to do with culpa? Aquinas says that there are three ways to act badly. 
You can perform an action that is wrong in its object. That is, an action that's just the wrong kind of action to perform, period. Like lying, or adultery, or punishing the innocent. Or, you can perform an action that is good in its object, but do it for a bad end. Perhaps you are working a second job, which is not bad in itself, but you are doing so to earn money to buy pornography. Finally, you can perform an action that is good in its object and in its end, but in inappropriate circumstances. Playing basketball for exercise is fine, but not in church. There are many ways to go wrong, and for an action to be wholly good, it needs to be wholly right. If anything goes wrong, the action is bad, and you are at fault. If that sounds awfully censorious, well, first of all, it's good to have high standards. But second of all, just because the action is bad doesn't mean it's very bad. Let's take another example. You sing the gospel acclamation at Mass, which is good in its object, and you sing it to assist the congregation and to glorify God, which is a good end. But you sing a little too fast because you're nervous, which means your act is subpar in one of its circumstances. Well, this is bad, but it's not very bad. You sang only a little too fast. So, like, don't beat yourself up. Anyway, to close out this section, those are the three ways in which an action can be bad. And when an action is bad, then we have a case of fault or guilt, which is what we've been talking about the whole time. So these three ways can be seen as the three main ways of acting in a faulty way, culpable way. But why do people act badly? What are the causes of culpable action? Aquinas divides them into three. First, we can act badly through ignorance. You don't know some important fact, so this leads to your actions being bad in some way. You fire your gun at an alligator, but you don't realize that it's actually a threatened species of manatee dressed up as an alligator. Now, if you didn't know, are you really at fault here? Well, this is another one of those complicated cases. Suffice it to say that sometimes ignorance is blameworthy. There are some things that you ought to know, and acting badly through ignorance of these is culpable. If I write F on the top of someone's final exam without knowing whose exam it is, <laughs> uh, obviously I can't just say, Sorry, I didn't know. <laughs> but not all ignorance is culpable, right? Okay. A second cause of culpable action is defects in our sensitive appetites, our bodily desires, and those emotions that have a bodily dimension, like anger or excitement. If you are too angry or too excited, then this can easily lead you to act badly like sending out an idiotic tweet that will bring shame upon your head. But how do appetites and passions cause us to act badly? Do they do so directly or only indirectly by bringing it about that we are ignorant of right and wrong? Does being angry make me tweet something moronic? Or does it make me think that this moronic thing is actually quite clever and my ignorance 
is responsible for the tweet. How one answers this question is related to larger background questions about the relationship between appetite and intellect in action theory. Gator alert. Finally, actions can go wrong through the will, voluntas, which is the special appetite that wants what it wants because it has been presented as good by the intellect. Sometimes our will goes astray. We know what is best to do, and our passions aren't causing us all that much trouble, really. But we just prefer to seek the lesser good in a way that violates the greater. It's a holy day of obligation. I know I should go to Mass, so there's no question of ignorance here. I'm not beset by extreme social anxiety, so it's not a sin of passion. I just decide I'd rather watch TV than go to Mass. Right now, anyway, I prefer TV to God's law. This threefold schema, defect of knowledge, defect of appetite, defect of will, gives rise to three main classes of wrongdoing. Sins of ignorance, sins of passion, and sins of badness or baseness, malitia, which is sometimes translated, perhaps not altogether helpfully, as malice. All of this, you will recall, concerns voluntary actions and not, say, actions like digestion. But talking about causes of bad action might raise a worry if our bad actions can be explained by pointing to defects in our understanding or appetite or will. Are those actions really voluntary? And if they are not voluntary, doesn't that mean that while they may be bad, malum, they aren't cases of culpa? To put it very bluntly, if my bad actions are caused, you might think, then they aren't voluntary. And if they aren't voluntary, then I'm not to blame. The first thing to say is that this objection is, in part, based on a misunderstanding. When Aquinas talks about the causes of our bad actions, he isn't necessarily talking about causation in a sense that would take away voluntary choice. If I spill your coffee because someone shoved me hard, that's a case in which my coffee-spilling action was caused in a way that takes away my voluntariness. But that's not the only kind of situation that Aquinas has in mind. When he talks about what causes our bad actions, he's often just talking about what explains them, and what explains them might not be something that removes voluntariness. The question, what was the cause of this bad action, is really like the question, what went wrong here? Suppose you say, why did you spill my coffee? And I answer, because I felt a strong desire to humiliate you. I am stating a cause. I even said because. But there's no suggestion that this gets me off the hook. I'm explaining that it wasn't, say, because I wrongly thought your cup was filled with poison and I was trying to save you. I'm telling you what went wrong. But as far as our little conversation has gotten, it still seems quite plausible that I'm blameworthy. 
Now, Aquinas does say that sometimes ignorance or passion can remove voluntariness. He grants that this is possible. Sometimes you just didn't know, and you couldn't reasonably have been expected to know. Sometimes you literally go insane and are overcome with a passion like anger that leads you to do something terrible. But these are extreme cases. It's not plausible that my wrongdoing is typically involuntary in this way. Or, if it is plausible, then that's just a way of saying that I'm deeply unwell and probably should be kept under close supervision. When someone is found not guilty by reason of insanity, he's not released. He's committed to a psychiatric facility. So, passion or ignorance can remove voluntariness and blame but not usually. Often enough, in a case of ignorance, my ignorance is culpable, so the action based on the ignorance is culpable too. I might not have known the light was red, but it was my job to know. Often, in a case of passion, it's my fault that my passions are out of line, because I have been building up a habit of anger or lust or greed for all these years. Even if, in some sense, I now can't do any better, it's my fault that I got to this point. And anyway, typically I can do better even now, although, of course, it's going to be very hard. I have turned myself into an out-of-control person, and doing the right thing has become challenging. My past bad actions have determined... Sorry. My past bad actions have damaged the cause of my future actions, namely me, by acting in a way that is morally wrong, I have punished myself, inflicted poena on myself, by making it harder to act rightly. Culpa has led to poena. That is why it's so important to work at being good when you're young. Don't punish yourself. Given the way I have been presenting things, you might suppose that for Aquinas, Either you're insane and therefore not at fault, or else you're not insane and therefore you're totally at fault. And it does seem, at least at first blush, that it really is one or the other. Given that your action was bad, the only question is whether you did it voluntarily or not. And if you aren't insane, you did it voluntarily. However, Aquinas doesn't actually see it as black and white. In Summa Theologiae, Prima Secundae, question 77, article 6 to 7, he says, that while some, he says that while sometimes a passion takes away from voluntariness altogether, sometimes it does so only partially. In such a case, sin can be diminished. Now, here Aquinas makes an important distinction. If you sin passionately, if you are feeling the passion strongly after deciding to do the sin, that doesn't take away from the sin. Indeed, it just shows how bad it is, inasmuch as you're really into it. What diminishes sin is passion that comes before your decision, in such a way as to interfere with your reason and will and make it harder for you to make the right decision. So this is still one more alligator alert. What does it mean to say that an action is less than fully voluntary? This is just a really hard topic. I don't know what to say here. Why not say merely, 
it was a tough situation. You were tempted, but ultimately the choice was up to you and that's all. Why say instead, it was a tough situation, you're, you were tempted, your ability to choose was diminished? I don't think this is an easy question to answer. And that's not a cute way of saying that I disagree with Aquinas. It's a serious way of saying that there's something worth pondering here. Almost done. Now I'd like to go back to guilty feelings. I'll say just a bit about them. First, you shouldn't feel guilty if what you did wasn't bad in any way. Other people may want you to feel guilty, but really, if nothing bad happened, then guilt is not appropriate. Second, if you did something bad, but you weren't culpable, then also you shouldn't feel guilty. For example, if you hit a foul ball and it zooms off into the stands and hits some poor kid in the face, you shouldn't feel guilty. <laughs> you should feel sad about it. But the mere fact that you were causally upstream of something bad doesn't mean you were at fault. You probably will feel guilty. I probably would. Actually, I'd be excited that I hit the ball that far. No, yeah, you probably will feel guilty. I probably would, but I think this is irrational. Third, you shouldn't feel guilty if something bad happens to someone else but not to you. For example, if you and someone else are in the backseat of a car and there's an accident and the other person dies but you don't, you shouldn't feel guilty about it. You probably will. It's called survival guilt. But it's not rational, so try to move beyond it. By the way, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty about feeling guilty. I'm just saying. Like, <laughs> On the other hand, sometimes feeling guilty is good. If you were at fault, then feeling guilty about it is good. Well, it's good if it's the right kind of guilty feeling. To quote St. Paul, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly grief produces death. Guilty feelings that lead you to do better are good. Guilty feelings that lead to despair and self-hatred are bad and should be resisted. St. Thomas says uh, in the Prima Secundae, question 37, article 2, reply to the first objection that the good kind of sorrow brings with it the hope of forgiveness. He goes into a lot more detail in lecture three of his commentary on 2 Corinthians 7. Now I will finish up as one does with final remarks. I was just talking about negative feelings, and I suppose this whole talk has had a somewhat negative vibe. You may have been struck by the many ways in which action can go wrong and by the many factors that lead to this. If you add in the fact that everyone starts out already behind because original sin means at least that our tendency towards the weak is good and we are easily led astray, that, as the good book says, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward, then the overall picture might be a bit depressing it might even seem unfair. How is it fair that we start off behind 
And every time we mess up, it gets worse. Well, here's something else that isn't fair. The Son of God gave his life as a ransom for many and founded a church with grace and sacraments to heal and elevate our minds, wills, and appetites in a way that makes it possible for us to live well, not only in a merely human way, but also supernaturally. We have no right to any of that. It's entirely undeserved. It's totally unfair. And thank God for that. Thank you. Okay, now we have time for some questions. Perhaps I'm incorrect in my understanding of your last section on guilt. Um, when we talk about if guilt is correct, when it is your fault and it leads to repentance, but is not correct if it leads to self-hatred hatred and lack of repentance. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about a person who is a psychopath. Yeah. Psychopaths have no sense of empathy. They have no sense that it is their fault. And they do not have self-hatred. Where do they fit in? They have no guilt. So where does well, that sort of situation fit? Okay, so the, in, in the sense of being objectively at fault, they are guilty, but they don't have a feeling of guilt. And this is a flaw on their part. It would be much better for them and for the rest of us too if they felt really bad about being serial killers or whatever. Um, so it's like, a, um, this is related actually to the, a question we were discussing a couple days ago um, about whether and when pain can be good. I mean, feeling guilty is painful, but it's sometimes a good kind of pain. You sh they should feel bad about that. And, and part of what um, is disturbing about them is not only that they do these creepy things, but it doesn't even seem to bother them. That's what makes it, like, really chilling. Thank you very much, Dr. Roman. During your lecture, you briefly gestured that uh, actions can have essences of some kind. I don't know if that's, uh, like, per se or an abstraction of some kind. Uh, but could you uh, briefly uh, discuss that a little further? Like, is there an essence of murdering? Is there an essence of running? that can be uh, instantiated by particular kinds of substances? Uh, and then if murdering has an essence, how does that work with evil? Uh, what, what do you have in mind? There? Yeah, that's really brutal. Okay, so um, every being has an essence. Actions are beings. So in some sense, they have accidents. I mean, they have essences. Did I say that right? Let me start over. Every being has an essence. Actions are beings, therefore they have essences. So that sounds right to me. Um, in there, an action is a special kind of accident that belongs to an agent. Now it starts getting really tricky. So how do you define the essence of, say, running or something like that? This is a very difficult question. Um, it's partly difficult just because like metaphysics is always hard. And then it's also, I think, maybe a little bit extra hard because our words, the, the words that we use to divide up different kinds of actions may, 
I think they will often be very useful clues to where the actual joints in nature are, but maybe not always. So we have to be careful. Um, um, now, murder is a nice case because it sounds... I'm just balking here. The essence of it would have to include some defect, yes. some, some, some lack. And to include an, a lack of something in the essence of something, maybe that's what you were getting at the yeah. whole time. Yeah, that's kind of weird. Um, I want to think more before I say anything definitive. Um, it's tempting. You, any action that is an act of murder can be described in such a way that leaves the murdering part out, like thrusting a knife along these, you know, coordinates or something like that. And then you could, so you could describe, yeah, you could describe it that way and then make it seem accidental, circumstantial, that someone gets killed. This is sort of the kind of worry that I had in mind when I talked about using these things as a template. You can do that to some extent, but there are points at which you want to say, no, wait a minute, right? Um, but I don't know how to do that in a really principled way. Um, so I don't have a good answer to that question. Thank you. Um, you said, you made me realize that, uh, I guess, what uh, an axiom of Thomistic moral theory is actually false. Um, so, right, it's very common uh, for uh, Thomas to say, as you said, right, that uh, a good action has to be good in all three fonts of morality, right, an object, intention, and circumstance, but then you gave a really good example of an action like singing the exalted uh, at Easter mass, whatever, uh, for the glory of God, a little too quickly. Yeah. And you suggest that this is only slightly bad, but yeah. it's obviously not slightly bad, right? As an action, like it's a very good action. It's well, can't it be very good and slightly bad? Well, right. So I was going to say it might be a slightly bad singing of the exalted for the glory of God. But, right, a slightly bad singing of the exalted for the glory of God is, all things considered, a very good human action. Yeah. And so I'm wondering now, how should we revise that Thomistic maxim, right? Because the kind of flat-footed way in which I think most people state it seems... Clearly false now, right? There's yeah, but just because that, if there's any flaw, then you just screwed right, right. it up. There's just going to be some yeah. circumstances that make an action less than completely perfect, but leave it nevertheless very a very good human action. And so now, what, what do we say about when circumstances do that and when circumstances actually make the action all things considered a bad human action? Oh, I see. Oh, I thought you were just worried about the problem that it's sort of misleading to say, somebody says, you know, how'd it go? And you say, well, it was bad. And you go, what happened? You say, well, I just had to swallow my spit at this moment in singing and it blew the, the rhythm, you know. And they're like, that's all that went wrong? That was pretty good, man. You did fine. Let it go. Yeah, right? Okay. The, yeah, but, the, yeah but, but what you're saying is, I think, 
Like if you adopt the, that strategy, which will work a lot, then you just kind of have the sliding scale. You have like a right. sort of magically perfect action, which may never exist, all the way down to something that's totally horrible. And then it's just a sliding scale. But it doesn't feel quite right. You can see, like, I blew it. Like, there is such a thing as blowing it. Well, there's, there's a sliding scale, and somewhere on that sliding scale, presumably, we go from an all-things-considered good right. human action to an yeah. all-things-considered bad human action. And but, then it, there's this... Yeah. But if you put it, in ter- put it as a sliding scale, it seems like you have one of these Sorites paradoxes, right? right. Um, you know, if it, if it were only a little bit better, then it would have been a good singing... But since it wasn't quite that good, it was terrible, right? That doesn't sound right. So here I want to, I want to get th- spend a little more time thinking about this. But think about um, catching a pass. Now, you can do a really beautiful job of catching a pass. Or you can kind of bobble it around, but you finally do grab it. Or you can drop it. See, so in this case, something like deeply has gone wrong about it. Um, so you didn't like there's there's um, something you're supposed to be accomplishing here and you simply didn't. Uh, and that's not just a little farther down on the sliding scale. Um, so like if you're singing, um, you know, the gospel acclamation of the exalted or whatever, and you just like have a panic attack and you don't even finish. Like then that was like a very serious failure. Uh, um, then you would just but. I don't know. This is a good question. I don't, um, it's related to, yeah, I I think, I think it has, it's going to help to not, to move beyond just thinking of it as like a sliding scale, um, to start talking about when you did or didn't actually pull off the object of the act, when you, whether you did or didn't hit the end of the action. But then it seems like circumstances just wash out of the moral analysis. About like the the ultimate judgment as to whether it's a good human action or a bad human action. Well, I mean, I think if all you want to know is thumbs up or, you know, yes, it was good or yes, it was bad, then maybe the circumstances do wash out. But still, you should care whether you did something well or badly. Right. But it just, like... And so if you do something, a good action, but you do it badly... I mean, Ceteris Paribus, that's not good. You should have done better if you could have, right? Yeah, that still seems like a pretty important conclusion, though, that, like, the circumstances seem to wash out if all you're looking for is yes. that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you. On one level, I agree with you. And on another level, I'm now becoming skeptical about the notion that we should just have a, a clear, there's a thumbs up or a thumbs down, and that's all. But... I might be wrong about that. I, I'm now puzzled. I'm not saying that's all. I'm just saying there yeah. is such a thing. Well, there, we, there, it, we do talk like that. I'm starting to wonder whether we should. Okay. Yeah, but, but that's very good. Uh, I think, can, can I uh, add another dimension? I mean, I'm, I'm wondering if there's a, um, a confusion in this whole uh, dialogue here about um, the way in which we're saying good or bad. Um, because... Uh, it's it, good and bad are said in different ways, and there. And I think having an analogous sense of good and bad is important um, when we're in in these kinds of conversations. So, to um, at the Dominican National Studies, we have many experiences of bad exultants um, <laughs> because it's a very difficult thing to do. Uh, it's you, you're a deacon; you only get one shot. 
at the Dominican Association. <laughs> one year true. you get to sing it. And you, you know, it's the high point of the liturgical year. Everybody's watching you. And you get super nervous. Um, and so even a really good singer can get a stage, a stage fright, basically, yeah. and not pull it off. You start too high. You go too fast. You have to swallow it just the wrong time or whatever. Okay. So there's lots of ways to go wrong, and those we can talk about that. Uh, but it, aren't we now shifting into a matter of like art, and not so much a judgment of the moral? I mean, I, obviously we don't want to sharply separate right. moral uh, and the overall like excellence of the act, but it's not voluntary when you have to swallow in the middle of the phrase. And so you don't want to say it's a morally bad act. It's just you didn't carry it off as well as it could have been. It wasn't perfect. But I think in, in Christopher's question, it seems to me there was the, it was really about moral badness. Circumstances, you know, like we say that there's fault. So that's the theme that we're talking about here, right? Uh, we're saying that there's fault if the circumstances weren't good. But swallowing in the middle is not a bad circumstance in that sense because it's not a voluntary act. So doesn't that... Okay, yeah. So so this is... Uh, to think this through well, we're going to want to have examples where we aren't accidentally sneaking in some involuntary things. That's a good point. Um, I have to think a little, a little bit more about the extent to which... Um, I mean, part of being a good singer is not ending up in a situation where you have to just stop in the middle of a long phrase and go, <gasps> right, like you should have taken care of that. You should have marked the breath marks and stuff like that. So some things that in one sense involuntary, it was on you to not let that happen. So you can be somewhat blameworthy for these kind of performance failures. But I know what you're saying, and it would be better to find a sort of a cleaner example where there's no obscurities of that sort. It's more about like when you chose to sing it. Keep going. You can come up with circumstances which would be like, I chose to sing it at the wrong time because it would cast better light on me. You know, yeah. That wasn't the time when I was supposed to sing it. Right, right. Or I sang it like really loud to draw attention to myself or something like that. Yeah, yeah. The issue though is that failures are the issue, the issue you run into, though, is that the, the line, well, part, one way of putting the point I made to Michael another way is that the line between bad art and bad morality is not necessarily a sharp line. Yeah. Take the surgeon, for example, right? The surgeon who's doing surgery. Yeah. We might say that he's a bad surgeon if he does the surgery somewhat imperfectly, but still a good man. But certainly there is a way of doing surgery so badly that we would say, you're a bad man. <laughs> and not just like you're sort of demonically killing people, you're just like well, negligent. Right, yeah, 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 that's right. right. And, and, like, there's a difference between like, the kind of surgeon who like, we're not going to go back to and maybe the surgeon that we're going to sue for malpractice, right? <laughs> and so yeah, there, are moral, there are moral differences of like agency and voluntariness, vol you know, like... Anyway, I, I, it may be that we've killed over, like, over-focused on this subject, and there may be other questions. Yeah. I don't want to dominate the... We could, we could come back to this, but... Because it's obviously not a question. But. 
go back to the essence of evil actions for just a second. Okay. Here. Thank um, you. Isn't murder just taking an innocent life? Isn't stealing just taking what belongs to another? That's the definition. The definition oh, yeah, yeah. That's right. Like, what's, I, I was just confused why that wasn't just. Oh, it probably is. I was just getting starting to have metaphysical scruples yeah. about <laughs> about whether that's really going to count. Because insofar as there's something privative in the definition, it starts to sound weird as a definition. Yeah. It starts to sound weird as an essence. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't, so I didn't mean to be like deeply skeptical, like nobody knows what murder really is. Sure. Yeah. It's intentionally taking an innocent human life or whatever you want to say. Yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I didn't. I, on the, on the yeah. Physical level of like describing it as 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 a. The thrusting of the knife or the swinging of the axe yeah. or whatever it is. You haven't named it as a as a moral action. You've named it as a natural action at that point. Right? Uh, okay. Um, I sometimes... I would then want to say, how do you know when you've named it as a moral action? And it, I, f- I mean, it, one would have to do some work to figure out how to answer that question in a non-question-begging way. This is related to all of the famous stuff in Elizabeth Anscombe about the guy with the, the pumper. Um, and it's like really, it's confusing. So, um, but right. I mean, I agree. Like, like the, you can take sort of extreme cases, which are pretty clearly sophistical. But then about the difficulty is that what you can go, okay, that's sophistical, fine. But then how do you give the non-sophistical account? That's where the difficulty comes in sometimes. Uh, so, sorry to do this, but I do kind of want to harp on the discussion that we were just having. Yeah. Uh, I, so I guess it, it seems to me that um, if Aquinas just means by an act is only good if it's good in every way, that, that it's only perfectly or completely good if it's good in every way, that seems perfectly clear to me. Um, if he means it's only good all things considered, then... I would, I suppose I would just be personally inclined to think that, I mean, you could say that if you're a strict sort of person, but good all things considered is not a designation that is quite as precisely and pristinely clear as like good in some way or bad in some way. And what we have here are just like, you know, the the nice, like philosophically clean, um, yeah, it's good in this way, it's bad in this way. We could even say how good or how bad it is according to the features of it that we're ascribing goodness or badness to. Fine, and that's all, like, you know, as clear as you like. And then when we go to say, yeah, it's good or bad simply, or it's good or bad in general, or it's good or bad all things considered, what we're doing is usually just making some kind of somewhat more pragmatically loaded judgment, um, something that has a lot to do with our willingness to ascribe goodness or badness above and beyond, like, the actual goodness or badness which we see in the thing. So, like, you might say, for example, that a performance, like, at Carnegie Hall, in which you take a breath at the wrong time, is a really bad performance. But a performance at your elementary school, at which you take a breath at a bad time, is a really good performance. And it's just, like, like things like that circumstantial, like that external to the action, can change whether we're willing to ascribe goodness or badness to it simply. Um, and so it just it just seems to me that it's it, it's therefore got to be a somewhat more I don't know like like these um what's the parallel debate of epistemology about uh, 
whether you know something depending depends on, on the context or something. Wrong about it or something. Yeah. I know. Anyway. Uh, I think this is helpful. Um, what we say that was good job. You acted well there. Things like that will be relative to a whole lot of considerations. The context, um, how capable the agent is. You know what I mean? Like if you have just like terrible stage fright, but you've been working on it, and then you come up and you give a talk, and you're a little bit mousy, but basically you get through the whole thing, and you didn't panic, and I would say like, good job. Right. Even though it wasn't great, actually, but for you, it was really good. So I think this is all true and importantly true about how we talk about actions. But I also think there's a place for a less um, circumstantially relativized, less, I, want to say, I shouldn't say circumstance, contextually relativized way of assessing actions where there is like just the absolute standard against which things are judged. Um, and it's good, that's having, and knowing how to go back and forth between that kind of analysis and the very contextual analysis part of, is part of knowing one's way around in this area. But I, th I think you're right, and it's important to remember that a lot of times what we say is pretty contextual. Thank you for, uh, on the issue of uh, essence of actions, I was just thinking about the categorization of actions in this case, because what I was thinking is that they can be considered as um, being on a secondary level, as like accidents. But I, I don't know, like this, my question if they can be considered this way or not, because like accidents that can be considered being on secondary level actually well, it gets their essence from actually something that's primary, or in this case, might be the Asian themselves. Uh, so, like, yeah. So my question again: Are they accidents, or like the they are actually beings on a primary level? So I think I want to say that, like, I am a substance. And my current posture of standing is an accident of me. And my current action of speaking is also an accident of me. And accidents have essences, but what's funny about the essences of accidents is that the, the essences of the accidents contain like a little reference to the subject or substance in which they, the accidents, inhere. So my posture is a posture of me. The speaking is a speaking by me. Um, so I think there's always this connection to the primary sort of being, substances, um, but that accidents still can have essences in that sort of derivative, parasitic way. So then... Might we be able to uh, gain some ground by thinking of a specific action having uh, a couple essential properties? So, like, I'm going back, I, I'm kind of stuck on the exalted uh, example where you have specific objectives. You I just to... mentioned the gospel acclamation. I love how it escalated to, to the exalted. Yeah, that was okay. Like, you have specific things that uh, are essential to a successful exalted, like, I don't know, 
maybe singing the entire thing in tune isn't absolutely essential, where if you don't sing... Yes, it is. <laughs> but you can, you can imagine there are specific things where, like, you, things can go slightly deficient, yeah. and it's still not corrupted. It yeah. doesn't stop being an exultant. But then there are others that are absolutely essential, where if you fail to execute, like if you fail to finish... For example, yeah. Uh, it yeah. will fail to be yeah. a good exultant. Yeah. Just like... Uh, if you trip midway through running and you break your knee, I don't know, it fails to be a good run. Yeah. I, I, I think you could wait a little bit too far where you start running into weird paradoxes, but does that maybe help gain some traction? That, wait, does what help? The idea that there are kind of essential properties oh. to actions, whereas... Uh, Maybe actions can have accidental properties. There are slight modifications that allow you to analyze something as slightly better and slightly lower, but it is still good. Yeah, no, I think I think that's right. Um, so things can be off a little bit, and it's fine. Um, and part, you know, part of being a good judge of these things is knowing what is not all that important. Um, I'm tempted to say, I mean, I'm thinking of a cello performance that I saw once, which I thought was fantastic. Now, did, did the cellist, like, whack the bow into the cello a few times in her passionate playing? Yeah. Was that a flaw? I couldn't decide. Like, was I like, well, you know, or but it made it kind of a little bit more fun. Um, but anyhow... Um, so, like, it takes experience and judgment to know what's actually a flaw and what isn't. Um, but I, I'm, my guess is that it's, it's probably a mistake to think too abstractly about all these things. I mean, we should either think about them super abstractly and say there are essential properties and there are accidental ones and that's it, right? That's like qua metaphysician, that's what you can say. And then someone goes, well, what about like if you trip when you're running, but you get back up? Say, I don't know, talk to the running scientist, right? You know what I mean? Like that's a very subject matter specific thing. And you need to know a lot about cello playing to know what counts as good and bad cello playing. So you have to, you know, spend some time thinking about cantering before you are in a position to judge confidently about when you blew it and when you just could have done better. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.